Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to Button Books Chapter 9. Let's recap the events of the party and maybe another mini summary of our main character so far. This is more for my benefit than anything else because I'm not that. I'm not following that well. Kutili says, I wanted to know what sort of consoles our characters were. I thought it was a Republican title modeled after that of ancient Rome, since at the time Lubeck was a free city with the German Confederation. I googled a bit and found this out on the wiki. In the social life of the 19th century, Lubeck, as depicted in Thomas Mann's Button Books, based on Mann's thorough personal knowledge of his birthplace, an appointment as the consul of a foreign country was a source of considerable social prestige among the city's merchant elite. As depicted in the book, the position of a consul for a particular country was in practice heredity in a specific family, whose mansion bore the represented country coat of arms, and with that country confirming the consul's son or other heir in the position of the death of the previous consul. Consul's wife was known as Consulin, and continued to bear that title even on the death of her husband. Characters in the book are mentioned as consuls for Denmark, Netherlands, and Portugal. Uh, Techrific says, can I, conf I can confirm this. It was even a literary and popular culture trope in Sweden, naming a female character Consulinen, uh, to indicate a snobbish type or a kind of Karen, quote-unquote, type in today's parlance. Very cool. Thank you guys for sharing that. Fun fact. Swim said the moment fishy. I know you're going to come through with the goods, Swim. So here we go. Basic plot summary and main characters thus far. 1835. The wealthy and respected Buddenbrooks, a family of grain merchants, invite their friends and relatives to dinner in their new home in Lübeck. The family consists of consists of patriarch Johann Buddenbrook Jr. and his wife Antoinette, their son Johann III, or Jean, and his wife Elizabeth, and the latter's three school-aged children, son Thomas and Christian, and daughter Antony, or Tony. They have several servants, most notably Ida Jungmann, whose job is to care for the children. Um, okay, so... Pretty easy. Overnight, still keep forgetting. But we've got Johann Buddenbrook Jr. and Senior. Uh, the younger one has a wife called Antoinette. No, wait. The yeah. Uh, sorry, the older one has a wife, Antoinette. Is it? And then the younger one's wife is Elizabeth. I think that's right. What I think are the main events, are things we've learned thus far. During the evening, a letter arrives from Gotthold, the estranged son of the older Johann and half-brother of the younger Johann. The older Johann disapproves of Gotthold's life choices, choices and ignores the letter. The Buddenbrooks and the dinner party guests are Hanseatic bourgeoisie, not part of the German nobility, but comparable to it. Johann Sr. is old-fashioned. He misses how things used to be, like the Bourbon Restoration era, while Johann Jr. is more forward-thinking and likes the liberalization as he occurred, as has occurred under the July monarchy. 
it was apparent to me that the dinner party has more affinity with the French than the with Prussia. For example, they talked a lot about Napoleon and the events that occurred with the war, and Buddenbrook Sr. showed his disdain for Prussia. The Hanseatic bourgeoisie were neutral during the wars, and finally, I think they were all speaking French because my translation references Buddenbrook Sr.'s lapsing into Platz Dutch on occasion. The times they are changing, as noted by the debate regarding the customs union. Starry Boards chimes in to say, I think Platz Dutch means low German rather than high German. I was confused by there being two Jean characters at the dinner, but your summary helped me. Thanks. Um, cool. All right. Good recap. All right. I'm ready. Let's keep going. Sorry. I'm just kind of let it sink in a bit. I really do think I need to change translation because book is just not... It's like I'm not even barely uh, reading it. It's like it's on in the background, but I am reading it. Chapter 10 goes like this. Well, Johan, my son, where are you going? He stood still and put his hand out to his son, his white Buddenbrook hand a little too short, though finely modelled. His active figure showed indistinctly against the dark red curtains, the only gleams of white being from his powdered hair and the lace frill at his throat. Aren't you sleepy? I've been here listening to the wind. The weather is something fearful. Captain Clot is on his way from Riga. Oh, father. With God's help, all will be well. Well, do you think it can depend on that? I know you are on intimate terms with the Almighty. The consul felt his courage rise at this display of good humour. Well, to get to the point, he began, I came in here not to bid you good night, but to... You won't be angry, will you, Papa? I didn't want to disturb you with this letter on such a festive occasion. It came this afternoon. Monsieur Gotthold, voila. The old man affected to be quite unmoved as he took the sealed blue paper. Herr Johann Buddenbrook Sr., personal, a careful man, your stepbrother, Jean. Have I answered his second letter that came the other day? And so now he writes me a third. The old man's rosy face grew sterner as he opened the seal with one finger, unfolded the thin paper and gave it a smart rap with the back of his hand as he turned about to catch the light from the candles. The very handwriting of this letter seemed to express revolt and disloyalty. All the Buddenbrooks wrote a fine, flowing hand, but these tall, straight letters were full of heavy strokes, and many of the words were hastily underlined. The consul had drawn back a little to where the row of chairs stood against the wall. He did not sit down, as his father did, but he grasped one of the high chair backs nervously and watched the old man while he read his lips moving rapidly, his brows drawn together, and his head on one side. Father, I am probably mistaken in t entertaining any further hope of your sense of justice or any appreciation of my feelings at receiving no reply from my second pressing letter concerning the matter in question. I do not comment again on the character of the reply I received to my first one. I feel compelled to say, however, that the way in which you, by your lamentable obstinacy, a widening the rift between us is a sin for which you will one day have to answer grievously before the judgment seat of God. It is sad enough that 
when I followed the dictates of my heart and married against your wishes, and further wounded your insensate pride by taking over a shop, you should have repulsed me so cruelly and remorselessly. But the way in which you now treat me cries out to heaven. But you are utterly mistaken if you imagine that I intend to accept your silence without a struggle. The purchase price of your newly acquired house in the Mengstrace was a hundred thousand marks, and I am aware that Johan, your business partner, and your son by your second marriage is living with you as your tenant, and after your death will become the sole proprietor of both house and business. With my stepsister in Frankfurt, you have entered into agreements which are no concern of mine, but what does concern me? Your eldest son is that you carry your unchristian spirit so far as to refuse me a penny of compensation for my share in the house. When you gave me a hundred thousand marks on my marriage and to set me up in business and told me that a similar sum and no more should I be bequeathed but me by my, by will, I said nothing, for I was not at the time sufficiently informed as to the amount of your fortune. Now I know more, and not regarding myself as disinherited in principle, I claim as my right the sum of thirty-three thousand and three hundred and thirty-three marks current, or a third of the purchase price. I make no comment on the damnable influence which are responsible for the treatment I have received, but I protest against them with my whole sense of justice as a Christian and a businessman. Let me tell you for the last time that if you cannot bring yourself to recognize the justice of my claims, I shall no longer be able to respect you as a Christian, a parent, or a man of business. Gotthold Buddenbrook. You'll excuse me for saying that I don't get much pleasure out of reading that rigmarole all over again. Voila! And Johann Buddenbrook tossed the letter to his son with a contemptuous gesture. The consul picked it up as it fluttered to his feet and looked at his father with troubled eyes while the old man took the long candle snuffers from their place by the window with angry strides across the room to the candle abram in the corner. It says, I say, Nempal's puss to bed with you and invent. He quenched one flame after another under the little metal cap. There were only two candles left when he, when the elder turned again to his son, whom he could hardly see at the far end of the room. Eh, bien. What are you standing there for? Why don't you say something? What shall I say, father? I'm thoroughly taken aback. You are pretty easily taken aback then, Johann Buddenbrook rapped out irritably, though he knew that the reproach was far from being a just one. His son was in fact often his superior when it came to quick decision upon the advantageous course. Damnable influences, the consul quoted. That is the first line I can make out. Do you know how it makes me feel, father? And he reproaches us with unchristian behaviour. You'll let yourself be bluffed by this miserable scribble, will you? Johann Buddenbrook strode across to his son, dragging the extinguisher on its long stick behind him. Unchristian behaviour, ha! He shows good taste, doesn't he, this canting money-grubber? I don't know what to make of you young people. Your heads are full of fantastic religious humbug, practical idealism, the July monarchy and what not, and we old folk are supposed to be wretched cynics, and then you abuse your poor old father in the coarsest way rather than give up a few thousand thaler, so he deigns to look down upon me as a businessman, does he? Well... As a businessman, I know faux frais. Ah, faux frais, he repeated, rolling the R's in his throat. I shan't make this highfalutin scamp of a son any fonder of me by 
giving him what he asks for, it seems to me. What can I say, Father? I don't care to feel that he has any justification when he tells of influences. As an interested party, I don't like to tell you to stick out, but it seems to me I'm as good a Christian as Gotthold, but still. Still, that is exactly it, Jean. You are right to say still. What is the real state, real state of the case? He got infatuated with his Mademoiselle Stewing and wouldn't listen to reason. He made scene after scene, and finally he married her after I had absolutely refused to give my consent. Then I wrote to him, Montreux Sherfield, you are marrying your shop. Very well, that's an end of it. We cease to be on friendly terms from now on. I won't cut you off or do anything melodramatic. I'm sending you a hundred thousand marks as a wedding present, and I'll leave you another hundred thousand in my will. But that is absolutely all you'll get. No other shilling. That shut his mouth. What have our arrangements got to do with him? Suppose you and your sister do get a bit more, and the house has been bought out of your share. Father, surely you can understand how painful my position is. I ought to advise you in the interest of family harmony, but... The consul sighed. Johann Buddenbrook peered at him in the dim light to see what his expression was. One of the two candles had gone out of itself. The other was flickering. Even every now and then a tall, smiling, white figure seemed to step momentarily out of the tapestry and then back again. Father, said the consul softly, this affair with Gotthold depresses me. What's all this sentimentality, Jean? How does it depress you? We were all so happy here today, Father. We had a glorious celebration, and we felt proud and glad of what we have accomplished, and of having raised the family and firm to a position of honour and respect. But this bitter feud with my own brother, with your eldest son, is like a hidden crack in the building we have erected. A family should be united, Father. It must keep together. A house divided against itself will fall. There you are with your milk and water stuff, Jean. All I say is he's an insolent young puppy. A pause ensued. The last candle burned lower and lower. What are you doing, Jean? asked Johan Buddenbrook. I can't see you. The consul said shortly, I'm calculating. He was standing erect, and the expression in his eyes had changed. They had looked dreamy all evening, but now they stared into the candle flame with a cold, sharp gaze. Either you give thirty thousand, three thousand, sorry, either you give thirty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three marks to Gotthold, and fifteen thousand to the family in Frankfurt. That makes forty-eight thousand three hundred thirty-five in all, or. You give nothing to Gotthold and 25000 to the family in Frankfurt. That means a gain of 23335 for the firm. But there is more to it than that. If you give Gotthold a compensation for the house you've started the ball rolling, he's likely to demand equal shares with my sister and me after your death, which would mean a loss of hundreds of thousands to the firm. The firm could not face it, and I, as sole head, could not face it either. He made a vigorous gesture and drew himself more erect than before. No, Papa, he said, and his tone bespoke finality. I must advise you not to give in. Bravo, cried the old man. There's an end of it. Nen parlons plus en avant. Let's get to bed. And he extinguished the last candle. They groped through the, the pitch-dark hall, and at the foot of the stairs they stopped and shook hands. Good night, Jean, and cheer up. These little worries aren't anything. See you at breakfast. The consul went up to his rooms and the old man felt his way along the baluster and down to the entresome. Soon the rambling old house lay wrapped in darkness and silence. 
hopes, fears and ambitions all slumbered while the rain fell and the autumn wind whistled around the gables and street corners. <clears throat> Very good, there's another one for you. That's the end of part one as well. Cool. We'll find out tomorrow what part two has in store. Um, that'll be called part two, chapter one. So I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.